That's right, folks. Three Film Feature is back. We just had our big Halloween celebration last week. Now, this time around, we do enter some of the more horrific films. We look at Night of the Living Dead, as well as the 2004 film Van Helsing. But on top of both of those, we also have a nice musical splattered into the mix with Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. All weird films. Can't wait to talk about them. Of course, you can listen to, or I should say, you can see all the standard versions or the single released episodes on my YouTube channel. The link is in the description. But let's take a little break. And when we come back, let's jump into the free film feature, episode six. Night of the Living Dead. That's right. We are entering into the spookiest season of them all. And that means on Movie Tales, we're delving into some of the classics of horror and of course, of course I had to start with one of the most influential horror films ever made. Like, I think you look at the modern landscape of cinema, and especially in this genre, and you gotta commend George A. Romero for just being like, yeah, I get it. Low budget, creepy, nobody comes out alive, just some weird stuff happening all about. <laughs> I think that is phenomenal. And the fact that this came out in 68 makes it all the more impressive because this just... Is perfectly encapsulated of that time period. You know, we're on the verge of the 70s movement where we're doing, you know, like the the film student era where everyone's coming out. And then this is just like that kind of classic horror setup. You know, we, we do like our big build. We start off in like the graveyard. We're seeing like this, you know, brother and sister type. And they're just like, you know, at the graveyard. And suddenly the dead are here. It's simple. It's not over the top. But somehow it works all the same to make this story incredibly cool now the zombie trope is something that has been around forever and it kind of starts with this film but i just think like if you look at everything in the genre because i think zombie filmmaking and just zombie stories has kind of become like its own genre you have to trace it kind of back to like what this story kind of pitched the idea of being like these slow walking mindless beings hunting for humans just kind of like become this like mindless hive attacking the nearest source of substance and it kind of all comes back to this and you know what it's very impressive that this kind of show and this kind of movie especially in 68 holds up that well because horror movies, like, old horror movies can sometimes lose their flair. But this story, it feels like you could remake it today. And I know that animated movie came out recently, but, like, this story is just perfectly a bottle episode of watching these people struggle to survive. You know, we're following Judith Odia. She's, like, running into this house, and we see, like, the occupants inside that house and the people coming in to find, like, what who's alive and what's going on there. It is as bare bones as a story could be. We're running away from this threat. We are trying to survive in this house when everyone's kind of like on edge and they don't trust each other. It is super impressive and super scary that it actually works. I, I just think like this is so minimal and it just goes to show you Romero knows what to do when you don't got money. You know, we do it in just like this really simplistic style. We use the idea of a dead person. So you don't need that much extra makeup. You just make them look rough and rugged. You have them just walking in these slow areas. You shoot it all in one location and you just play around with that area. So you got like the basement, the attic, the upstairs, the downstairs, the main rooms, all these other areas to explore in this one location. And you build the tension around that. It's like we have all four walls enclosed in on us in this house. And that's kind of like what adds to the tension of the situation. Can we escape it? Can we get out of here? It's really impressive to see that stuff. And I, you know, I've never been the biggest fan of the zombie stuff. 
I'm not. I just think, you know, the trope's been played out numerous times for my generation where it all comes back to, like, you know, this, that, and the other thing, and it's just not that interesting. But I've always have a fondness for this film, maybe because it's, like, the first in that genre and kind of, like, built this idea of what, what all this stuff could be. But I really like this film. I think, you know, looking at just the actual horror elements, the camera work is fantastic, the close-up shots, the cutaways, just everything is so fast-paced and energetic, and in the slow moments you're terrified, the tension is building up in these beautiful ways. It's an incredibly well-made film in that aspect, but it also has something to say. And, you know, I don't want to get too political or politically correct in talking about a movie about zombies because what's the point of that? Everyone's got their own thing to say, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the actual end of this film and, like, how this movie sets itself apart from the rest, it is damn well impressive. That ending, and I, okay, well, I guess we could talk about it, like, we end up with Dwayne Jones, our last man standing, he looks like he's going to be escaping the horde, the police have come to save him, but because of the color of his skin, as soon as he exits the building, he is shot by the police, and what a statement, you know, you could say what you want about that Times was right in, like, the bubble of a lot of stuff going on in, like, you know, the political climate all over the world, but mainly in America, that is saying, like, hey, it's good for good or bad, for better or worse. It is saying, like, as that kind of a man in this country, there is going to be certain things that will happen to you. Even when it's the end of the world, you are still that. And I'm like, that is just incredibly powerful and scary. And it just, it just, it's one of those small things that not a lot of people are going to think about, especially of, you know, like the mindless generation that might be watching this for fun. But if you think about it, in 68... Your last man standing, it's become a trope in, you know, movies like this where the first character dies, the African-American character, but he's our last one standing, and as soon as he gets that chance of freedom, it's taken away from him. Just let that metaphor sink in for a minute. It's intense and gripping. And, you know, let's talk about the zombies for a bit, because, you know, like every, you know, everything does their zombie thing, and there's different types of zombies. I think these ones, they're not that scary, maybe because they're just slow-walking people, but... There's an enemy there. There's something you can be frightened of just by these slow-moving people. There's actually some intensity and some fear that they bring. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, it's not that intense. They're, they're clearly just people acting. And that's kind of like the thing that zombies have to get a certain thing right is that it doesn't it shouldn't come across as people like doing a performance of like the but like an actual dead thing just walking. And I, I think we're getting there in this where it's just like, of course, because what do you compare it to? Of course, there's been like stories about things rising from the dead, but in this capacity where it's just like a bunch of like a horde of beings closing in on you, how do you like portray that in a good way? You haven't really seen it in this genre before or into like the aesthetic where it works that well. So while I think the zombies are terrifying, they do like pose a threat to our team, they aren't that interesting at times. And I, 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 I can buy that just because we are slowly getting to what a zombie is going to become. Is this the first film that uses the term zombie? I can't remember if that was like the case or not. I think this is one of the earlier cases. If not, it is the earliest case. I really like it. It's a great use of the word. It's just really fun. And, you know, there's enough people in this movie where we have our, like, cast of characters. We got our, you know, like, our younger kids, our parents trying to help those kids, our damsel in distress, which I, I get it. Like, one of my biggest criticisms of this film, and I'm going to just be like, it's the 60s, that's going to happen. But Judith Odia kind of, like, 
gets you know a little bit of the ring around for being like the woman who's like i just saw a lot of weird shit and i can't contain myself this is not a normal situation going on and all the kind of like men are yelling at her it's like get it together woman like fix yourself up make yourself useful that stuff i'm just like of course it's just that that era of horror in a sense where it's just like the woman has to be scared but a woman is still leading a horror movie, so I don't know. It's just really interesting in that way. And I I wish it just worked better for me where I just bought it and I cared about that story a little bit more. That being said, you can't talk about this film without time like the impact it had on cinema and horror films because everything comes back to this. The term of zombies, like the closed off tension building. You can tell this inspired a lot of filmmakers going forward. In particular, I would say Sam Raimi was probably inspired a lot by this film because you got a lot of those certainly camera movements that Raimi became known for happening in here i think it's great like for a film set in 1968 and like that being when it's filmed it looks insanely modern like the camera movements are beautiful the characterizations are very classical and just perfect for any generation like this film works really well whether you set it today yesterday or tomorrow it's really impressive and that's george a romero like the guy Love him or hate him, but if you hate him, I don't understand why. He is just brilliant. He knows what he's doing. He can make a compelling story with just a small cast, a small budget, and make you scared and just be like the grandfather to what horror would become, just like this intensity, fear-gripping thing. This is a slow build to get to this one situation that just attacks you from all angles, and it's really cool to see that. You know, Night of the Living Dead, not only is it just a great horror film, it's a fantastic look at the culture of the time, where we were of horror, where we were of politics. And while some of the stuff doesn't hold up and some of the stuff is dated and weird and, you know, it looks like it's from the 60s, the story could be from any time, but the film looks like it's from the 60s. It's an enjoyable film and one that I, I just had a good time watching again. It's nice to go back and see that a classic horror film, especially in the zombie genre, can still work in the modern context. I think that's really important to see, and I like this film a lot. And Judith Odia, she does great for what she's told to do. I wish there was more. And Dwayne Jones, I love him. I love his performance. I love how the movie ends with him. It's intense. It's gripping. It adds something to that world that we're not used to seeing. And I think that is a really positive outlook to give to a film like this. Just the intensity, the pain, the fear, all culminating into a low-budget flick that would define a genre for years and decades to come. So my final thoughts on Night of the Living Dead are, it's great, it's classic, it's horror, it's zombies, it's dated at times, but still a good watch. And George A. Romero, one of the best out there to ever work in the industry. Ladies and gentlemen, we have officially reached a milestone in these episodes of Movie Tales. Because not only are we crossing off two bucket list people when it comes to our first viewing of them, we are crossing off our first full-on musical. Yes. I'm a musical fan. I, I love musicals. I love the genre. If you didn't get it from the title of this video, or if you're listening to this on the podcast feed, we're talking about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, a great classic film from the 50s that is high swinging screwball comedy with some incredible stars and some really fun hijinks. But not only is it a musical, it is our first foray into one of my favorite directors, Howard Hawks. I love this guy. I think he's a workhorse who just said, we're making films. Let's make them. Let's have fun with it. 
that is such a rare talent to be able just to go to any genre and pull it off. Sometimes you get stuck in this niche category, but Howard Hawks just goes, nope, I'll make a comedy, I'll make a western, I'll make a silly thing. Just put me on it, boss. I got you covered. So I love him. We will definitely be getting more into his stuff. But on top of being our first Howard Hawks film, this is our first foray into Marilyn Monroe, the icon herself. And now I could dedicate an entire video to Marilyn herself. Let's give a quick couple thoughts on this beautiful woman. She is pretty decent as an actor. I will never say Marilyn is the best talent ever, you know, put to screen. She's probably the most iconic. She's probably the most beautiful. And that's probably affected her in more ways than any of us could understand. And I think she is just like the tragic case of the wrong place, the wrong time, where you just have everything that could go for you go wrong. And we still build you up to be this thing that you have become. And I like Marilyn. I respect her. I cherish her. I feel bad for some of her circumstances. But watching her in this film... I think you start to notice that something's a little bit going on there behind the scenes. And I, I still think she does a great job. I love Marilyn. I respect her. We'll talk about her again some other time in a bigger, grander detail. But Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, a big musical from the 50s starring Marilyn Monroe and the ever-talented, the most beautiful woman in Hollywood at this time. If you want my opinion, Jane Russell is the best. I absolutely adore her. I respect her. I love her. She is just perfect in this film it's great they they just play two musical women just having a good time dancing about just two gals from little rock just going on a great swing headed over to paris to hang out and they go on a cruise ship and you know maybe marilyn's got to keep some infidelities to herself because when she gets there she doesn't want her new hubby to kind of like find out about who she could be or what she likes and that like that like is of course money it's fun you know this is just a standard 50s comedy you know just we have these powerful women, and I, I kind of like that we don't explicitly say that Jane Russell's interested in the sexual thing. When men, she's just like, yeah, we're going to be on a boat with a bunch of Olympic dudes? Hey, I could have fun with that. And she plays it off so sincerely, so incredibly fun, that you buy it. It's kind of cool to see Marilyn as kind of like the more quieted one, where it's just like, hey, I'm just going to like you know be in love with this guy who's given me a lot of money. You can go over there and have fun. And, and the way they play off each other, just age-old friends just having a goof. It, it just works so well. And you love the chemistry between them. You love the interactions between them. It's just beautiful to see. Now, Marilyn Monroe's character, pretty much her arc throughout this is just that. I'm going to go where the money is, which I, I kind of think they justify her characterization with this kind of like comment she makes later on to, towards the end of the film uh, with Gus's father. Where it's just like, you want your son to marry somebody beautiful. Of course, he doesn't have to, but it's a perk, isn't it? It's the same way when a woman wants to marry a rich man. So why would you bash me for wanting to fall in love but have the money as a perk? And I'm like, that's fine. Clearly, she does like Gus in some aspect. They get married at the end of the movie. And I think that kind of like goes against or juxtaposes everything she says when it came to Piggy. And Piggy, of course, being our old elderly dude, and he's just like, you know, wants to get some wants to get some Marilyn Monroe on, <laughs> on him, which, of course, that's just standard. I get it. <laughs> of course I get it. I mean, look at Marilyn. It, it, it's fun. But, you know, it's just like she clearly just wants the diamonds from this guy. 
but she likes Gus, and I think that that works for her character. It's like she learns to fall in love with Gus, not just for his money, but the money's a perk. I can't hate her for that. That's your entire thesis for this show. And there's another one there that Jane says, I think later on, it's like something about, you know, I'm tired of like being played for the things men do to me or just, I, it was in Maryland. That's, I think it's Maryland that says it actually, now that I'm thinking about it. It's something like men always tell me what to do. I don't want to do what men tell me to do. I'm just going to do what I want. If it means falling in love with this guy, fall in love with that guy, it works. I buy it. I believe it. I think it's very fun to see. And I love Marilyn in this film, but you got to commend Jane Russell for playing against her and being that extra face in there where it's just like, look, Marilyn's going to be the eye candy gentleman, prefer blondes. We even get a scene where Jane wears a blonde wig and she acts out like Marilyn, which is very funny and very authentically cute. But Jane is just strong, committed, confident. She is just going in there. It's like, yeah, Look, I'm going to have a party in the next room, have a couple drinks, grab some glasses. I'm just going to have a good time. Why should I worry about any of this? I got, you know, Gus there protected Marilyn. She's going to protect me. I don't care. I'm just going to have a good time with it. Have some fun. I buy it. I think it's authentically cool. Very interesting. I like that she falls in love with the poor guy to juxtapose everything going on with Marilyn. Marilyn's after the money. She's after nobody, but she just happens to fall in love with Ernie, who just happens to be poor and kind of a sleazeball. And, you know, she's got some great one-liners in this. I'm not going to go through each and every one of them just because we could be here all day and we don't got that kind of time. But I just, I love that in this era, and I know there's, like, people who say, like, it only took a certain point in time, like, pre-Ripley from Alien, women weren't really portrayed as, like, strong or confident or anything on film. That's not true. Since the creation of film, women have been portrayed as these confident, powerful people, but sometimes it gets bogged down because the man has to be portrayed in a certain way to make the woman look weaker. But Jane Russell in here, the entirety of this film, she is just confident. She is in control of every situation she's in. Every time she walks into a room, she's got everybody on the tip of her finger just walking around like she owns them, which is perfectly cool, perfectly exemplified in the film. It's great to see. I like that a lot, and it is immensely funny. And, you know, this is kind of like right there, kind of towards that certain point of the screwball comedy, which there are some screwball moments. I love the scene where, like, her and Marilyn are harassing Ernie, and they're, like, spilling water on his crotch to take his pants off to find the photos. They're throwing his jacket off of everything. When Marilyn's trying to climb through the porthole, and she gets, like, the little kid to come help, help her and hide under her to make sure Piggy doesn't realize she's stuck in the porthole. It's funny. It, 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 it's it's like that classic kind of humor that just exemplifies it. And Marilyn, she's got talent. She really can stick through it. And sometimes you feel she's dragging on a sentence just because she's not focused or anything. But when she's going for it, she can go for it. And I think that's really cool. And having Jane just like, I love the scene. I don't know if this was done in like a negative connotation where it was like to make fun of Marilyn. But when Jane goes to like the courthouse, she's dressed up as Marilyn's character. And she's just, you know, making fun of that silly little voice she talks in and doing those silly moves. I don't know if that's a negative way where she wanted to make fun of Marilyn or it's just like they're on the joke together, but it's good. It's funny. It is committed. And everybody, every man in that courtroom just completely falls into that trap of like, oh, this is a beautiful woman who's trying to seduce me in a fun way. I like it. I think it's incredibly fun. 
Now, some of you might not know this, but I really like fashion. I'm a fashion guy. I enjoy seeing that stuff. And I could talk about their dresses all day. I love the scene when they're coming to dinner. We got like the orange and the green dresses. They're walking down that stop the show. Those are beautiful. The beginning outfits when they're in like the sparkling red numbers. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous to see. My personal favorite is, I can't remember what point in the film Jane Russell wears it, but it's just like the classic, you know, long jacket, the the white and the white shorts and the blue top. It's just a simplistic look like you're going to a tennis match or something. I think that is the best look for her. It is just beautiful. It exemplifies everything about her features. It looks great. I think that's just stunning. It's just a quiet, simple outfit that looks gorgeous and just plays into her features really well. And of course, how can I not mention the pink dress that Marilyn wears in that iconic scene that has been parodied time and time again. We'll get to that in a bit here. I love the contrast from the red and the pink. It just works in a way you're not expecting it to work. You just think like, oh, these are just colors that shouldn't go together. They shouldn't, but it's just stunning to see them play off each other. Absolutely fantastic. Gorgeous to see. So, it's a musical. What are the best musical numbers in this? Well, there's a lot of them, and some of them are pretty good. I like the work just two gals from Little Rock. That's really fun. Of course, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, the most iconic part of this film. And for good reason, that is just everything that Marilyn is. Just a bunch of men swooping after her, just being like, hey, you're all pretty nice guys, but look, I just want jewelry. I just want the money. I just want to be that. And when you see that Gus sees that, he kind of freaks out. I think that is fantastic. That is a beautiful, iconic scene that it just perfectly encapsulates everything about that genre, about this movie. It's just gorgeous, and she's a beautiful woman. But my personal favorite musical number, and I cannot remember for the life of me the actual title of the song, but it's when Jane Russell is just walking through the guys who are working out, our Olympic athletes who are swimmers, gymnasts, whatever the hell, just a bunch of just random guys. Triathlon? Is that a thing in the Olympics? Just a bunch of Olympic dudes. And she's just walking through them like, why can't I just find a guy to love? You know, I just want to fall in love, have a good time. Staring at the men, flexing, jumping into the water, spinning all about her. It is so funny. It is so endearing. And I just think she looks stunning in that scene. It's amazing, and if I'm not mistaken, she is not supposed to be knocked into the water at the end of that scene there, isn't she? And they pull her out and just, like, go on with the scene. It is insanely funny. It is insanely creative and beautiful, and everything about this film just works. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, a creative title, a beautiful film that just captures everything you love about the genre. The music is fantastic. The costume work is fantastic. Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, two of the strongest leads in a film of this era. They play off each other in such a beautiful setting. The story is unique with like, you know, with like tales of like betrayal and love and diamonds and tiaras and best friends and lovers and all that stuff. It plays off each other really well and does something very creative and I just love that we had the opportunity to sit down and talk about these two wonderful people in a context this fun and original and creative it's such a good movie it's one of my favorite movies we've talked about on this channel so far and probably one of my favorite directors that we've talked about too well, we have reached the end of this Halloween season and there was a lot of fun stuff we did. I did my big special on the Halloween movies and with that we talked about what I consider to be the worst movie I've done on this, you know, movie tales so far. Halloween Resurrection. 
Well, the movie we're about to talk about today, I don't think it's as bad as Halloween Resurrection. It's certainly not good. <laughs> so this is Van Helsing. This is from 2004. It is from Steven Somers. You know, the legendary director that made the Mummy franchise cool? Well, he wanted to tackle some other Universal Monster characters. And wow, was this something just insanely weird. Like this was... I'd hesitate to call it the worst film I've talked about, but it's definitely the most awkward just in terms of execution because stylistically, it doesn't know what it's trying to be. Like every other movie we've talked about, it knows what it's trying to do stylistically. This one's just like, are we a throwback to classic horror films of the 30s? Are we an action film? Are we the mummy? Are we gothic? Are we comedic? What are we? Tonally, this film is all over the bloody place and it doesn't work well. First off, this film opens up with a black and white flashback to the creation of Frankenstein. And it looks incredible right there to the, the perfect camera work, the, the perfect set design. Everything about it looks great. Then it cuts to the present day where we see Hugh Jackman with a terrible wig. Or is it a wig? Either way, it's terrible hair in an overdone costume with a weird accent and the accent to me holy cow i could probably talk about that all day because the accent he is doing in this film is both parts australian it's part english it's part british it's part american he can't pinpoint it perfectly like certain moments you feel like he's drawing out what makes him hugh jackman then in other moments you feel like he's trying to do it accurate to the time period it doesn't come across as good in any way which is very sad to say because he's an okay actor. I won't say he's brilliant, but Van Helsing seems like a role that an actor would want to do with because it's one of those classic ones like Sherlock Holmes or Macbeth. Like it's got that prestigiousness to it. And you'd think a guy like him who's known for his theater could do something better with it than just screwing about with a dumb accent. The wig's, the wig's terrible too. <laughs> I, I adore it. So Van Helsing in this movie, is working for the Vatican City Church, and he's just like James Bond working for MI6. It's just really weird. There's literally a scene earlier on where we see his Q, who is this guy called Carl, I, I believe, just the, you know, the goofy sidekick who has to make jokes. He's like, here's all your gadgets you're going to need. We don't have like a sports car or like a gun for you, but here's a, a like, like a mini gun crossbow and just so much other stupid stuff. And that's fun. If tonally that's what he was going for, just this weird kind of comedy film where everything is just like, yeah, look at how dumb Mr. Hyde is. He's scratching his butt looking like this insane lunatic. And it's like, hey, here's your gadgets. We're going to go fight Dracula. If that was the tone it was going for, then that would be great because I could definitely see a funny, you know, self-aware, nuanced take on Van Helsing working, especially with this cast, because some of them feel like they are playing the comedy side, and other ones feel like they're playing this too seriously. The one playing it too seriously, Hugh Jackman. It feels like he doesn't get what the tone of this is trying to be. It wants to be the mummy, so don't play it like you're like a, you know, chiseled old grumpy guy who has, you know, been through hell and back in this weird dystopian world where monsters exist. It's weird, and it doesn't work. So Hugh Jackman is weird in this. Carl is just, he's a character that in this era, like the mid 2000s, anytime there was like a big action film with any lead character, you had to have the wacky sidekick who's making jokes and is putting himself in peril in a funny way. 
Every film did it. Zahara, National Treasure, The Mummy, kind of to an extent. Every one of them did it. It's never worked worse here because, well, he's capable. He's just a nuisance. And the story could literally go the same without him in here. And that kind of sucks because if you're going to do something like that, make it special, make it fun. Don't just become a random character in here. But let's also bring up the fact that Kate Beckinsale, right after doing the first, what is it? Res no, not Resident Evil. What's the one she did? Underworld? She <laughs> So the year she did Underworld, a story about werewolves and vampires feuding. She does this film, which is a movie about werewolves and vampires feuding. She really just stuck the landing on being a woman in those films. And I don't like Underworld. They're not that interesting. This isn't interesting either. And she's playing like this a different type of character that's more annoying. The other thing that you see in this time period specifically when you got like our brooding badass, our comedic guy, you got the woman who is headstrong enough to do things on her own but eventually falls for the leading man. Every movie I already mentioned, that's the trope too. And it's, again, no worse than it is here because she is very capable. Her and her brother are like the heirs to this Transylvania town. And her brother gets turned into a werewolf, so he can't lead. And she's like, I can do all this stuff myself. But she really can't. She is very incapable about her brother, so she has to get help from Hugh Jackman. And that makes it incapable, too. It's very weird. <laughs> and it just doesn't work. And I feel bad for her wearing that stupid outfit the whole time, like the corset. It just... It doesn't look comfortable. It doesn't look like she has any mobility, but it's supposed to make her sexy. But all it does is make her look uncomfortable. And that's weird because if you are this woman who is known for kicking like the ass of vampires and werewolves and any monster that's in the world around you, why would you wear something that's so cumbersome where you can't actually like move your waist or your hips? It's weird and it doesn't work. And again, it's Kate Beckinsale. If you think she's a fine actress, yeah, she's doing good here. It's, it's, it's standard work for her. Nothing more than that. It's the same as Hugh Jackman. If you like the things he is doing, it's, it's fine. There's nothing more to it. So those two in particular, they are the reasons that this just totally feels off because it's so dark and there's like some edge to it and it's kind of like trying to be like this weird gothic romance thing but it's not working and then where i'm like if this was just strictly a comedy it would be funnier and better because the actor they got to play dracula and look we've seen dracula plenty of times on screen this guy just sells the fact he is a millennial old lunatic just doing whatever he wants. He is so insane. He's over the top in every situation. He is screaming. He is maniacally laughing. It is so funny the way he talks to his brides because they they just like, I just beck and call at any moment. And he's just like, whatever. I'm just being a lunatic who wants to live forever and like change the history of worlds. And I have these weird babies living in eggs that I want to make grow and my army could be unleashed. Like that is so stupid and weird that it makes sense. That's funny because he is just camping the hell out of it to the extreme and it is so funny and you just see the way he reacts with everybody in the world around him you understand that this guy is supposed to be stupid and silly and that's the tone it went for same with igor because for some reason after victor frankenstein betrayed dracula igor stayed around he's crazy too just like this insane looking lunatic who just happens to show up every now and then to be you know like a like a blofeld's jaws assistant you know just like that classic james bond secondary villain that we can beat up and again it has the james bond stuff because this is a blofeld like character this dracula is so over the top and maniacal that his plan is dumb 
I'm going to use the power generated from Frankenstein's monster to shoot electricity into my weird egg sacked babies so my army can grow larger. And Van Helsing, who's James Bond, is going to come in and foil me. It's ridiculous. So it should be a comedy, or at least as campy as the 60s Bonds were, because that's the tone it wants to go for. And the Dracula himself, he looks pretty cool. I will say there's a lot of great designs in here. The Brides of Dracula have a really great design where they're actually kind of intense and scary. I think the werewolves have one of the best werewolf designs we've seen. Not even the fact that they're like ripping their chest open and their skin off their bodies every time they transform. I just think like these big jackal-like dogs just looks perfectly. They're all distinctive in their own way. And that's very cool. I also really like the way Frankenstein looks. Now, he's a character who I think gets the shit end of the deal here just because he's used by pretty much everybody for whatever reason necessary. But the design itself is intimidating and scary. He's like a bulky guy who's literally breaking apart at every moment. His brain is exposed with like a weird glass jar over it. It looks cool. It looks awesome, actually. One of the best Frankenstein looks since the original, I would say. It looks that good. And again, I, I don't know who's playing Frankenstein, but that is just perfectly campy and weird. If that's what it was, if we didn't have like the weird lead characters making this so emotional for no reason, it would play better because there's certain moments where like the musical score or the camera work just lends itself to that weird comedy feeling or that weird parody feeling, but then it doesn't go there with anything else. And at the end of the film, I've seen a lot of criticism about this online, actually. The end of the film just kind of becomes like the standard action film third act where we just swing in and save the day and everything reverts back to normal. It does happen in this. It happens in everything else Steven Somers does, which is fine. And I get it. There's a lot of... Because he, he also did the G.I. Joe films. There's a lot of that in here where it's just like, keep going for the camp as opposed to the serious stuff and it would work better. It works better for G.I. Joe if you did that too, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. When we get to G.I. Joe, we'll talk about that. But I'm just like, you're trying something here. And it is, I think the funniest thing is just how they show Van Helsing getting bitten by the werewolf. And then they're like, oh, we cured him. What was the point of that? You could have saved yourself like a couple minutes just cutting that plot line out. Because the rest of it is just weird egg sac baby monster vampire bats coming out of nowhere to eat you. It's weird, it doesn't work, and this is a weird Van Helsing movie because it wants to be so many things and ultimately satisfies no one. Look, this was supposed to be the franchise exploring big picture, and it just became a dumb, troped-up thing with a guy who was popular at the time doing a fake accent with a weird wig, just screaming about how he loves this woman he's known for a couple days. Look, the effects look good, the cinematography looks good, but this is a weird movie that ultimately does nothing cool or interesting. I don't recommend watching it because it's long and played out. It's just a classic Van Helsing bullshit. Not that exciting. <laughs> it's just so weird. Man, what a dumb plot for Dracula. He was so good, but I'm just like, wow. What are, what are weird babies you have? So that is going to do it for this rendition of Fantastic Tales. Now, thank you guys so much for watching this video. Be sure to like and subscribe to the channel. As always, you can check me out on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And I will catch you in the next one. Have fun. Stay safe. Good.